If you are new with us this morning, uh, or you haven't been with us for a while, uh, we have been going through uh, the Ten Commandments over our summer series. We've been looking at each of these different commandments and, and how they call us to live a certain way as God's chosen, God's rescued, redeemed, saved people. And, and this morning, uh, or last week, excuse me, last week, Pastor Kurt uh, from our Spirit Lake campus led us through uh, the, com- the sixth commandment, this commandment that pro- prohibits murder. Um, but as we saw from that passage, uh, Jesus' Jesus's interpretation of this commandment reminds us that this commandment is far more than just uh, about murder. And in fact, Jesus reminds us that the heart of the law is primarily concerned with your hearts. Let me say that again. The heart of the law is primarily concerned with your heart. And that's crucial for us to understand this morning today as well. This morning, we're going to be looking at the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment focuses on uh, this uh, prohibition against adultery. And while this command is, is certainly concerned with external actions, we also must remember that this command, the heart of the law, is primarily concerned with your heart. This morning's topic is a very important one. It flies right in the face of our culture today. We live in a very hypersexualized culture. Uh, we live in a culture with gratuitous sex found in movies, music, television, books, advertisement, and on and on and on. And significantly, I think, the, the presence of this, uh, this excess uh, of sex in our culture actually is proof positive. That God created us as sexual beings, but it's also proof positive that something has gone terribly wrong with God's plan for sex, God's plan for this good, good gift. Over the past six months or so, if you've been following along in the news, we've seen revelation after revelation after revelation uh, coming out of Hollywood about sexual abuse, about harassment that takes place there, about this predatory nature in that industry of these people who are in power and how they prey on those who are more vulnerable. And this has actually spawned this hashtag MeToo movement. It's actually emboldened a number of women to speak up across the globe about the times where they too have experienced sexual harassment at work or at the gym or in the community or in in countless other places. And I think this is a helpful moment for our culture because even though it makes us uncomfortable, it also reveals to us how broken our culture's view of sex actually is. We don't have time to go into this topic in depth, but I think that there are compelling reasons to, to, to link the, the sexual harassment, the abuse that takes place in our culture with the neglect of this commandment, commandment number seven. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. This commandment is a short one, just like the last couple ones. Uh, it is only one verse long, so here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at this verse, uh, take some time exploring the, the true meaning of this command. And second, I want us to just pause and ask the question, why does this command matter so much to God? I think that's a particularly important question for us to wrestle with, for us to answer, especially in the culture that we live in. Why does God care so much about this commandment. And so as we approach God's word in this heavy, heavy topic, I just want us to pray once more, ask for God's presence to be with us. So please pray with me. Lord, we, we uh, are in desperate need of your spirit to be here this morning. 
And I confess that this is a difficult topic, That's one, that one on the surface can seem relatively straightforward, but as we spend more and more time uncovering this, uh, spending time in your presence, I, I think, I, at least I was struck anew with guilt before you. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would be with us, and I pray that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would empower those of us who are at our wit's end in our battle against sin. God, for those that are in desperate need of forgiveness, I pray that you would remind us that you give it to us absolutely and abundantly. God, we ask that you would be present with us this morning and remind us of your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, consider these words from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. That's, that's the command that we'll be going through this morning, those uh, short few words. It's a, it's a short command, it is succinct, and it is to the point, but it packs a lot of truth in and a lot of application into such a short statement. So let's explore this commandment uh, and what's in view here. This commandment is found in the midst of, of three commands that were virtually universal, in the ancient time. In the ancient world, the command to not murder, the command to not commit adultery, and the command to not steal were found in basically every single civilization on the face of the planet. But unlike those other nations that had these commands not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, this command was rooted for the people of Israel in the identity and the work of God for his people Israel. Remember, as we've looked at it time and time again, remember the context of Exodus chapter 20. Remember the reason God is issuing these commands to Israel. It's found in the first two verses of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the context that we are to read this command. Israel is commanded not to commit adultery because they have entered into a relationship. They've entered into a covenant with the Lord, with Yahweh. The Bible speaks to this idea of covenant time and time and time again, specifically or especially in the Old Testament. The covenant was an unbreakable promise, a commitment made by God to Israel and from Israel to God that carried with it certain expectations on how they were to live in relationship with one another. And so here, this seventh commandment is, at its core, concerned with covenant. It's concerned with the relationship between God and Israel, but it's also concerned with the covenants or the relationship between one person and another, the covenant of marriage. Last week, uh, my family was out of town because we were at the wedding of Crystal's brother. Uh, the wedding was a celebration of this covenant that was made between these two people. It was a commitment from one to the other that carried with it certain expectations on how to live in relationship with one another. Now, I officiated the ceremony, but I didn't declare them husband and wife until they had committed to one another in covenant. Now, we're gonna look at this later this morning, more in depth, but consider just briefly why God is so concerned with the protection or, or even the, the word sanctity of marriage here. It's because as a covenant, as this commitment relationship between two people, it reflects in a good way or in a bad way, it reflects his covenant with 
his people. So if the people of Israel do not value the covenant, they don't value the promise of relationship and all that entails, they don't value the covenant of marriage, it reveals a heart posture that's going to show a lack of concern with their covenants or this promise of commitment, this promise of relationship with God. And so, while this command is found throughout the ancient world, here, it would be wrong for us to say it's the exact same thing as the rest of the nations. Here, this commandment to keep the marriage bed pure is rooted in the very identity of God. It's rooted in the salvation that God has given to Israel. So this, this phrase, do not commit adultery, has at its most basic definition the intercourse between two people where one of them, at least one of them, is married to another person. In other words, it's the breaking of this covenant exclusivity mentioned earlier. But based off of what we just talked about, this language of covenant, it would be wrong for us to say that this commandment only refers to one very narrow, limited, for, uh, very narrow, forbidden relationship. And to understand why, we have to look back at God's original plan for marriage. If we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see God's original plan for marriage. Genesis 2 tells us about the creation of Adam. It tells us that Adam was created as the vice regent or the governor of all of God's creation. And God gives him a job as his second in command. He says, as my second in command over all of creation, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to name all of the animals that I have created. And so God sends all of the animals to Adam and Adam gets to work naming them. But over the course of this task, Adam becomes more and more and more aware that something is missing. Something is missing. Remember, this is a, a task that was given to him before God's creation was marred by sin. And so Adam, as he's naming these animals, he's delighting in all of the creatures that God has created. He's, he's marveling at the work of God on display and the creativity of God on display time and time and time again. But as he names animal after animal after animal, he realizes something. There's this desire in him for fellowship. There's this desire in him for, for intimacy, a desire for interaction, this desire that cannot be fulfilled by the glory, the, the beauty of these animals. And so God puts Adam into a, a deep sleep. And while he's sleeping, God takes a piece of Adam and forms woman out of it. He forms Eve. And Adam wakes up, and God presents Eve to her husband, not unlike a father walking his daughter down the aisle at her wedding. And how does Adam respond? Well, Genesis chapter 2 tells us of the exuberance that Adam responds with. Or Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first love song ever written. It might not be the, the lyrics that we would think of, but Adam, he sees this woman and he bursts into song because he is so excited that he finally has a partner. He finally has the fellowship that he realized that he has been missing all of his life. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we see that God is aware 
that Adam doesn't have a partner. God is aware from the very beginning that, that Adam is incomplete, and yet he brings all of the animals before Adam anyway, and God has a plan. God is aware of what Adam is missing, but he knows that Adam is not yet aware, and so he wants Adam to, to feel with every fiber of his being that he is missing something that there is this longing in him that is unsatisfied, that cannot be met even by the, the glory of God's creation. And so no wonder Adam breaks into song. He spends the entire day naming animal after animal, becoming increasingly aware of how very alone he is in creation. And yet here at last is one exactly like him. Genesis 2, verse 24 continues. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here, at the very beginning of creation, we have the first marriage. We have the first physical reunion between husband and wife. And there are many reasons, if we look at Scripture, many reasons for the gift of marriage to humanity. But here... The very, first, the very first passage about marriage focuses on companionship. It focuses on relationship. It focuses on unity and not being alone. God pairs Adam and Eve together for their own benefit. He pairs them together so that they will not be alone. And part of that pairing is the exclusivity of the sexual union between the two of them. So now go back to Exodus. God does not just have in mind the very limited definition of adultery. He has something more in mind. It seems apparent from this prohibition here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, that he also is thinking of other forms of sexual union that are outside the bounds of God's original good plan and intention for marriage, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. So this includes premarital sex, this includes spousal abuse, this includes same-sex unions, this uh, includes masturbation, this includes the consumption of pornography, and on and on and on. And this is picked up in the New Testament. The New Testament focuses on this prohibition and expands it to include all forms of sexual perversion that are outside of God's original plan for marriage. But it's not just the New Testament that argues for this either. This application... This prohibition that we see here is, is a concrete example that is being applied to very different forms of, um, of application. It's found exact same way in other uh, of the Ten Commandments as well. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the command to honor your father and mother. As we saw from that, uh, from that commandment, it's a command that's primarily meant for home, but it also has implications for honoring authority in every other sphere of your life as well. The Sabbath which we talked about a few weeks ago as well, is a command that focuses on one specific day, but it also has implications for other seasons of rest. Last week, we looked at the prohibition for murder, and we saw that it wasn't just about intentional acts of murder, but it also includes recklessness that results in death. And so this commandment, it specifically focuses on adultery, but it also rules out any form of sexual union that is outside of God's original plan for marriage that we see in Genesis chapter 2. The seventh commandment, the one we're looking at this morning, is concerned primarily with the covenant of marriage. But a quick look at the Gospels 
tells us that this command is not just focusing on external actions, it also is concerned with the heart. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, reminds his listeners that the heart of the law is more focused or more concerned with our hearts as well. It's focused on more than just our action. Jesus reveals the heart of the law in Matthew chapter 5. Consider these words from Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, it's a fascinating declaration of the ethics of his coming kingdom, of how we are to live in his kingdom. And in this sermon, Jesus declares how his people are to live. If we're going to follow Jesus, this is how we are to live. And he sums it up with this statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a terrifying statement. Jesus' quotation of the seventh commandment is found in the midst of this declaration. More specifically, it's found in the midst of six different topics that Jesus introduces with this phrase, you have heard that it was said, or you have heard that it was said of old. And this is followed in, in just about every case with a quotation from the Old Testament, here with a quotation of Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. So what is Jesus doing here in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is addressing the misinterpretation of Scripture, and he's revealing to people the true heart or the true intention of God's law in the Ten Commandments. In the verses just before ours that we just read in Matthew chapter 5, he looks at the command not to murder, and he says, it's not enough for you to not kill people. It's not enough for you to not murder people. The root of murder is ungodly anger. The root of murder is when you are so overcome with this anger that you are just as liable to judgment as someone who actually completed the deed. Jesus takes the external action and he internalizes it. He traces it back to the heart, looks at the root, and says, this is caused by this, something that comes from within us. And Jesus does the exact same thing here with the seventh commandment. He points out that God is deeply concerned with external actions, but he's also deeply concerned with internal heart postures as well. In fact, Jesus, several chapters later, is talking with the Pharisees and his disciples, and he describes where evil and wickedness come from. He says this, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into a person or goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the, how, how, uh, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. As one pastor I think rightfully points out, he says, no sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. No sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. Jesus reminds his people that God cares about what takes place in a person's heart just as much as he cares about what that person does with their hands and with their body because wicked actions always start with wicked thoughts and wicked desires. So, consider Jesus' exposition of the seventh commandment found here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus starts with a, com- with a quotation of the commandment found in verse 27. Then he reveals the heart of this commandment in verse 28. It's not enough for you to have a pure body. You also must have a pure mind, a pure heart. This language that Jesus uses here is extremely clear. If you look at a person who is not your spouse lustfully or literally, if we were just to translate this literally, it would say, with passionate desire, then you have already committed adultery with that person in your heart. You've already taken them in your heart. The action is done. The action is over. It's completed. The deed is done. There is no turning back. Just with a second glance or a lingering gaze or allowing your mind to wander after reading a book or watching something that you shouldn't on TV, you have committed adultery. And how high of a calling this is. How high of a calling this is. With Jesus' words here, he sets a standard that is impossible for us to bear on our own. Which one among us is not guilty of us? Which one of us has not fallen prey to an unsanctified imagination, running wild, even while our external actions may seem to line up with Jesus' command here? As the great author Oswald Chambers once wrote, this line of discipline, this very line of discipline is the sternest one that has ever struck mankind. And with these words, Jesus uncovers the guilt of all of humanity. There, were, there, are, there are some people who have broken God's law by the physical act of adultery or her sister's sins, but all of us stand guilty before God for the adultery of our hearts on display with astonishing frequency in our lives. Consider the words of David, the adulterer, in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Recognizing that the seventh commandment condemns each of us should make us humble, not filled with pride like the Pharisees who flaunted their external righteousness around while around others while their hearts were decaying on the inside. Psalm 24 should be read in unison with Isaiah's words in Isaiah 66, second half of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Which one of us 
could not be humble and contrite in spirit when faced with the reality of their heart's own wickedness. Seeing the desperate condition of our hearts should cause us to mourn our sin, to repent daily, and to reject, or excuse me, to, not to reject, to rejoice at the unfathomable gift of grace that has been extended to us from our King. The King who says, Be perfect, and yet who also makes a way for us to be perfect. You see, Jesus' exposition of this commandment continues in Matthew 5. He tells us to take drastic measures, whatever you need to do to put sin to death in your life. Note verses 29 and 30 again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Here Jesus uses hyperbole to show the drastic measures that we must be willing to take to put our sin to death. Jesus is not at all suggesting that we literally mutilate our bodies in our battle against sin. After all, a blind man or a blind woman still can have a vivid imagination. A maimed man or a maimed woman still has a fully functional heart, which can just as easily lust and imagine things that it shouldn't. The answer to our battle with sin is not external punishment, but it's to take drastic measures to our heart, to have a willingness to do whatever is necessary to put sin to death. One pastor from England describes this charge beautifully. He says this, what does this involve in practice? Let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes by the objects that you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind and so could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. And again, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, becoming temptation because temptation comes to you through your hands, the things you do, or your feet, the places you go, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. That is the meaning of Jesus' teaching. Many of us are likely familiar with Job's comment in Job chapter 31. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? How many of us would do well to make the same commitment, not only with our eyes, but also with our entertainment consumption? but also with our hands, our feet, and our speech, not as a form of rigid legalism, but as a faithful following of Jesus' teaching to do whatever is necessary to kill sin. And if that means that you don't get to know what's happening on the latest TV show, even though everyone else does, so be it. To use Jesus' language here, is that not better than having your entire body thrown in hell? If that means that you don't get to go to the same places that you used to, so be it. Is that not better than having your entire body thrown in hell? If that means that you have to find different patterns of computer use or drive to work a different way or go to a gym, go to the gym at a different time or any thousands of other different options, so be it. Jesus, at the heart of this commandment, is concerned with your heart. 
And we would do well to take heed of Jesus's words here. You see, Jesus is deeply concerned and God is deeply concerned with us keeping this commandment. He takes this commandment very seriously, far seriously than any of us ever have. And we may ask the question, why? Why is it that God cares so much about this commandment? Not just our external actions, but also our hearts. Consider three reasons that we find in Scripture. First, as we already alluded to, breaking this commandment disgraces God's good original plan for his creation. Breaking this commandment disgraces God's good original plan for his creation. We saw in Genesis chapter two how God created marriage. He created something good, something beautiful, and God desires that we keep it the way he created it. One of uh, our children's favorite pastimes right now, unfortunately, is uh, to destroy the work of the other child. I, I saw this uh, on full display. Um, Silas has gotten really into puzzles uh, recently, and, and he had just put together four puzzles. He did a really good job on, on his own, and he turns his back, and there's his sister comes in, and she starts ripping the puzzles up and, and tearing them apart. She got joy out of destroying it, and, uh, and Silas decides to return the favor, of course. Mara will build a block tower, and, and she turns her back, and then all of a sudden the tower is knocked over because Silas decided that it looked better when it was on the ground. You can probably imagine how well that goes over with, uh, with our kids. It's devastating to those kids when their good work, the creation they worked so hard on, is ruined by the carelessness or the selfishness of another. And so how much more does it grieve God to see his good work, his good gift, warped and twisted and defiled on a daily basis externally and internally. That's the first reason why God cares about this. Second, when we break this commandment, we actually dethrone God. We kick God off the throne that he sits on. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, this prohibition against adultery was primarily focused on the concept of possession. So uh, in the Old Testament, a man possessed his wife and a wife possessed her husband. The idea of purity of heart is found there, but it's not the main focus. It's primarily focused on possession. And what we're going to see next week is we looked at the, look at the command not to steal. One of the primary reasons God prohibits theft is because it is an actual, it's actually a declaration that I am God. I am the one who sits on the throne. Those who steal conclude that they are sovereign, that they are the ones who get to decide what belongs to them, not anyone else, and especially not God. And so they take whatever they want. They don't care that they are actually commanded to be stewards of what God has entrusted to them as their king and as their ruler. And so when it comes to breaking the seventh commandment, this is, adultery is actually a form of theft. It's a, it's a form of taking something that is not yours and by extension is an act of dethroning God, telling him, I am God and you are not. So consider the example of David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. 
And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. So in this passage, we see that David sees something that is not his, and he thinks to himself, God has given me enough, right? No, David does not think to himself, God has given me enough. I can trust God as the sovereign ruler of of all the universe. He has entrusted so much to me, and he's entrusted Uriah with his lot as well. No, his actions reveal something completely different, a completely different thought process that says, I am king. I will take whatever I want, no matter the consequences. I make the rules. No one else, not even God. The dethroning of God that takes place in the breaking of the seventh commandment. It's not just external actions either. Paul David Tripp uh, is an author, and he just so powerfully shows how this takes place in our hearts as well. This is a long quote, but it's worth reading to you. Hear these words. Think of the woman who is lying in bed early in the morning fantasizing about sex with someone other than her husband. She is unhappy with the world that actually exists because she did not create it, and she does not control it. So the real world does not do her bidding or give her whatever she wants. So in her bed on this morning, she seeks to raise herself to the throne of God and in her mind creates a world as she wants it to be and and then rules the world as its absolute sovereign. Everything in her self-created world is her possession and everything in her world submits to her pleasure. She uses what she has created and she wants to use it for whatever pleasure she seeks. She has removed God from her universe, taken his throne, possessed what belongs to him, thrown away his rules, and written a new set. Her problem is greater than a failure to love God. In her fantasy, even if just for a moment, she has killed God, taken his position, recreated the world as a garden for her own pleasure, and uses it as she and she alone wills. What she is doing in her bed is not a little thing. It is a horrible thing. And each time she does it, it will make, her, make it harder and harder for her to accept the real world where she doesn't have the position of God. In the real world, she will be more and more tempted to act as the sovereign that she isn't and attempt to possess and experience what does not belong to her. And then Tripp goes on and, and shows that it's not just about fantasizing, but it's also gazes of lust that dethrone God. You see, when we break this commandment, we kick God off of his throne. This is why it's serious business in God's eyes. It's why it matters so much to him. Third uh, third final reason why this commandment matters so much to God. This commandment is ultimately about Christ. It's ultimately about Christ. The fascinating thing about the Bible is that it begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve, and it ends with the wedding of Christ and his church. The Bible is, at its core, a love story. It's the radical pursuit of a wayward bride by her relentless husband. Why does God care so much about this commandment? The reason he cares so much about this commandment is because God's people are to live in a way that lives out their marriage as a signpost that points to his love for a church. And that's not just for those who are married. 
This is for those who are married or single, those who are dating, those who are divorced or not, those who are remarried or not, those who are widowed or not. The way we conduct ourselves externally as well as internally shows and makes a declaration about how God treats his church. We began this morning by speaking about the importance of covenant. Covenant matters to God because it ultimately points to his covenant with his people, a covenant to which he has completely and utterly been faithful for all of time, will continue to be completely and utterly faithful to for all of time. And that's what this text is ultimately about. As we consider the importance, as we consider the gravity of the seventh commandment, your heart's integrity must reflect Christ's love for the church. Your heart's integrity must reflect Christ's love for the church. The bar has been set by Christ's love for his church, not by the culture, not by your neighbor down the street who's cheating on his spouse, not by the person who works in an office a few doors down that struggles with pornography. Your heart's integrity is meant to be a reflection of Christ's faithful and steadfast commitment to his bride. And that is true for every single person here, no matter your relationship status. The calling for us to have our heart's integrity mirror Christ means we should take drastic measures in our battle against sin. This means that those who are married should take drastic steps to cultivate their marriage, to invest in their marriage, because this is not just a prohibition. This is also an exhortation to focus on your marriages. This is a call for those to repent who need to repent. And for others of us, this is a call to remember that we can forgive ourselves because God has forgiven us. This commandment matters to God because your heart's integrity must reflect Christ's love for his church. You see, above all, this, this calling is for those who are single and those who are married, those who are widowed, no matter your status, to more greatly desire, to more greatly long for the eternal marriage of Christ and his church. It is to long for the day toward which all earthly marriages, all earthly purity points the marriage of Christ and his church. Consider these words, Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. For every single Christian here this morning, your life is leading to a wedding. And as you hear those words from Revelation chapter 19, you may think that my heart or my past is the exact opposite of a bride who has clothed herself with white linens, a bride who is bright, a bride who is pure. As, as you hear the words of these passage, as I look at the, the heart or, or my past, there aren't a lot of righteous deeds in my life that make me clean and, and white. And here's the reality. 
Sexual sin is a very big deal. It's why Jesus spends so much time on it. It's why Jesus tells us to deal with it with such harsh terms. And the truth is, this is one area where Satan will latch onto you and will flood you with guilt. Will make you doubt the forgiveness of God, make it hard for you to forgive yourself. And so as we close, I just urge you to hear these words from Micah chapter seven and use these words from Micah whenever you feel condemnation over what you have done or over what you have thought in your past. Hear these words. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out into the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets." Such richness is available to God's people here when we pray this prayer over our lives. Like Micah, confront those thoughts that declare that your sin is not forgiven. Remind yourself, remind the enemy that your sin is not the final word. And when you fall, whether, if, whether it's the first time or the millionth time, declare, I shall rise not because of your own righteousness, but because of the exceeding mercy, the exceeding grace of God. Declare that even in the midst of loving discipline from God's hand, you will be vindicated through his Son. And you will have the final say in your battle against the enemy of your soul, that you will be victorious in your battle against your sin, not because of your own efforts, not because of your own merit or hard work, but because of the incredible bride price paid for us by Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, and our Beloved. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear the words of this command, I'm just reminded of of Psalm 24 and the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer is none of us could do so without your grace and your mercy. And so, Lord, this morning, for those who need to extend grace and mercy to themselves, I pray that you would help them to forgive themselves because you have forgiven them. For those who struggle, I pray that you would give them strength to overcome their battle. God, for those who are proud, I pray that you would humble them with the depths of the mercy that you have shown to each and every one of us. And God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to long more greatly for our marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. For the marriage that all our lives point toward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.